Good morning to everyone. Wonderful to see you here and to be worshiping the Lord with us at Bethany Church. Delighted when anyone who is new comes to be with us. And uh, we know that each and every Lord's Day when my wife Beth and I are out on the lobby area, we're meeting new folks and enjoying the opportunity to uh, greet those who are here for the very first time. We are in a month of Sundays, five of them to be exact, where we're asking that question, what is the church? Why does the church matter? What's the relevance of the church? And uh, if you haven't been with us for the first two of those messages, you can go online on our website. There's a podcast. There's also um, even a YouTube channel uh, for Bethany Church in which you can see the, the video tape of the messages. And we've also instituted the opportunity for those of you who would like to read more than either eyeball a sermon or listen to one, there are transcriptions of the messages that are being released. And just this week, one of our older saints who has not been able to be with us over the last several weeks, Joan McSeveny, uh, has been uh, listening to the sermons as her husband reads the transcripts to her. Now, I can't think of a fate worse than death to hear me, but I remember Lloyd-Jones once said, I wouldn't walk across the street to hear me preach, referring to himself. And I think, well, if that's the case with him, what hope do I have? And yet, God honors his word, doesn't he? And this is the opportunity for us to think, especially this month, when we have a fifth Sunday in which we're going to have an annual meeting directly after the service. We're going to have some fellowship together around a meal, and then we're going to uh, talk about things old and new at Bethany, and we want to encourage all of you to come on the 29th. Now, on the evening of the 29th, we won't have our regular 6 p.m. service, as we will have tonight and next time. That's reserved those fifth Sunday months when we gather together with five churches total, and we'll be at Pleasant Valley Bible Church at 6 o'clock listening to the preaching ministry of Paul Phillips, who's the pastor there. And uh, that'll be a great opportunity for you to meet four other churches and their congregations as we gather together. And I know you'll enjoy that immensely. I always meet someone new, and it's so refreshing uh, to meet those who love the Lord Jesus and who are part of other ministries, not only in the Conejo Valley, but also one of those churches in Fillmore. And so I know you'll enjoy that. We are... uh, grateful for these brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to come together. We're in this series, and as I said, if you've missed the first two, let me, get, let, me, let me just give you a little bit of review, all right? Because if you haven't been with us, and even for those of you who have but have not been taking notes, let me just give you a little quick review of what we've been doing. We've been asking ourselves about a key concept related to the church, and I've given that to you in, in a very, very summary and short fashion. And then I've given you a key biblical passage, maybe a couple of them, but at least one. And then a key word that sort of boils everything down about the relevancy of the church, the, the mighty nature of the church, the power of the church, uh, the, the essential elements of the church, the marks of the church. And so let me start off by giving you the first one way back in part one, and that is that the church, here's the key concept, the church exists to glorify God. The church exists 
to glorify God. In Ephesians 3.21, the Bible says that God will take or have His glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So God has appointed the church to glorify Him. It's part of the reason we exist. In fact, I think it's the most important part. And the key word there is doxology. It's just a fancy word for worship. God will have His worshipers. And in the church, God demands and receives and expects and rejoices in those who worship Him. That's why we do what we do. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we hear the Word of God. All of these things are related to the idea of glorifying God. It is our doxological praise of Him. Secondly, we saw that the church exists to be a repository of divine truth. You remember I said that's our key concept, and while that word repository is not much used anymore, it means a a deposit, a a reservoir. And the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church of the living God is the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. The church is this divine repository of biblical truth. If the church gave up on truth, if the church compromised on truth, then the church would cease to exist. We know it won't, but if in fact compromise comes, it'll be because the truth is not stated at the highest level, defended, preached, instructed, and even in a sense worshipped because Psalm 138.2 says that he has magnified his word even above his name. That's the idea that the truth of the word of God is so to be magnified, so to be taught, so to be defended, that we could say the key word is theology. Theology. It's the doctrine of God. It's the doctrine by which we stand. It's the doctrine by which the church has her rightful pillars her rightful foundation. That's a key idea of the church. The church exists to promote, to accentuate sound doctrine. Thirdly, thirdly we said that the church also is a place for loving fellowship and mutual edification. That's why the church exists. That's why we're relevant. Because the church exists for our corporate fellowship. Nobody should be a Lone Ranger Christian. Nobody self-styles their Christianity. In fact, John Calvin once said so very passionately and poignantly, if you don't have the church for your mother, then you don't have God as your father. And that's true. The church is the very entity in the world in which you and I can corporately gather, we can fellowship, we can edify one another, build one another up. And the key word there is mutuality. Mutuality. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us in no unspoken terms in verses 16 and 19 that the very body of revealed truth is given to us, a speaking of doctrinal truth in love so that we may be built up, edified, so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and deceitful schemes of the devil. So you and I exist for the idea of doctrine 
truth with legs on it. Truth is not just so that we can get fat heads, but so that we can have robust bodies. So truth has legs on it. We can fellowship with one another. We can encourage one another. We can build up one another. In fact, even tonight at 6 o'clock, you ought to come back because I, I, and I believe this is very, very much needed in our time, in the space and time in which we live at Bethany Church on the Hill, having been two congregations before last year, now coming together into one body. We're going to be talking tonight about living in harmony with one another. Living in harmony with one another. Or be at peace with one another. We need the mutual fellowship. We need the mutual upbuilding. That's, that's why mutuality is our key word. We are mutually fellowshipping, banding together for the sake of upholding the truth of God so that God may be glorified. Number four, number four, the church exists as a training center, an equipping center. You remember I shared with you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, that God, Christ, gives as a gift pastor-teachers for the building up of one another so that you and I are given the opportunity to be trained, to be equipped, so that we are excellent proclaimers of the gospel, so that we know the Word of God. That's why in this series itself, on these, these marks of the church, I'm sure most of you have said, yes, yes, I've heard this. I know these things. Well, that's why Peter says, and I'm going to teach you again by way of reminder, right? Because if you're like me, I tend to lose my grip sometimes on what I already know to be true for two reasons. One, one reason would be just plain old forgetfulness, right? You ever had that sense in which you're reading your Bible and you, you are intently and desirously wanting to read your Bible and you read those words on the page and as your eyes are lifted off the page, you say, what did I just read? I forgot. Yes, because of our forgetfulness, we need to be reminded constantly of the things we know to be true. Regripping on the basics. Doing what we can to endeavor to keep the main thing the main thing. And the other reason why we need to be reminded of these truths is because of familiarity. We become so familiar with the truth, we become so familiar with these ideas about the church that it becomes ho-hum to us, blasé. And yet, if you and I are faithful church members, we come here because of our forgetfulness and because of our familiarity so that we can be reinforced, regripping on the truths to be equipped, here's our key word, for the practicality of living out the Word of God, truth with legs on it, so that people can see that we love God by loving His Word. Number five, church exists to be a light in a dark world. The church exists to be a light in a dark world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says that we are to be above reproach, we are to be blameless as Christians, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation so that you and I can appear as lights in the world. That's one of the reasons of the church. That's one of the very core ideas of why the church gathers. 
Not just so that we can glorify God, not just so that we can have right theology, not just so that we can have mutual fellowship and great edification, not just the practicality of having truth with legs on it, but also, here's our key word, it is our missiology. We're missiologists because we are appearing as lights in a dark place. Soon as we leave the confines of this very, very wonderfully renovated worship center, we're going to be on attack. Soon as we leave these doors, as soon as we come off this campus, as soon as you drive off the hill, you and I are on the ready because we are lights in a dark place. Have you noticed it's a dark place out there? Have you noticed how challenging it is, especially in our sort of multicultural pluralism of today where everybody's opinion holds sway, where it's like the man who jumped on the horse and rode off into all directions? Everybody thinks they have the handle on truth. Everybody thinks there are multi-ways to God. Everybody believes that what they're doing and what they're saying because it's their opinion is therefore to be honored because it's their opinion. But there aren't many ways to God. There's only one way, through Jesus Christ. And we have to proclaim that message as we appear as lights in the world. We're missiologists. We are to take the message of the truth of Jesus Christ and move out as a band of brothers and sisters so that we can appear as lights in the world. Number six, the church is God's delegated representative on the earth. The church is God's delegated representative on the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, this wonderfully affirming phrase, I, Jesus said, will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first time the church in the the gospels and in our New Testaments is is referenced because Jesus has a plan. He's, He's got a purpose. And the key word there is authority. Authority. Jesus gives us the authority to be his delegated representatives on the earth. It's not in any any club, any organization outside the very purpose, the very warp and woof of what the church is. And the church is God's representative on the earth, the local church. You say, well, the local church doesn't seem all that authoritative to me. Doesn't seem all that relevant to me. Doesn't seem all that much to me. Well, that's, that's why we're here, and we, know, we need to live up to that. We need to be God's represented authority in this land. Delegated authority, I grant you that, but authority nonetheless. Number seven, the church is the only place where real forgiveness and reconciliation can be found. The church is the only place where real forgiveness and genuine reconciliation can be found. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, there are the four steps of reconciliation. If your brother sins against you in private, go to him. If he listens to you, if he repents, you've won your brother. You have a real forgiveness. And we need that. In fact, the key word here is accountability. Accountability. You and I meet people who are desperate for forgiveness. And even in the church, even as brothers and sisters in Christ toward each other, we sin. We'll continue to sin after we've come to Christ. 
And we need to know, we need to affirm, we need to be able to be in an environment where even though we are still sinning against the Lord with the residue of our sinful life until glory, we need those to come alongside us, to admonish us, to confront us in love, and to come to us with a, with a heart knowing that they too are sinners. According to Galatians chapter 1, we are to bear their burdens, yes, and there's a, an accountability for us to each other because God wants us to have real, true, genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. Here's the next one. The church is uniquely commissioned by Jesus Christ to make disciples of all the nations of the world. We're we're uniquely commissioned by Christ to be His representatives with a message to make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and here's what I want you to do. And he was talking, of course, to his apostles, and they, of course, are commissioning us, and here's the mandate, and here's our key word, responsibility. Responsibility. We have a responsibility to take this make disciples command of Jesus out to the watching world. Now, I know you say, I've heard the Great Commission, I've heard Matthew 28, 18 to 20, a thousand times. Have we re-gripped on such a truth that we are indeed working practically in the world to make disciples of one another? You know, in the Hebrew mindset, you didn't really know something, you didn't really have a knowledge of something until you were actually practically working out that knowledge in your daily life. The sense is, I don't know what it means to make disciples unless I'm what? Making disciples. That's our responsibility. That's our mandate. Number nine, the church is the platform where the ordinances are vividly displayed. In Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians 11, we see that the church has been commissioned to perpetually celebrate two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In Romans chapter 6, while it's talking there about spiritual baptism, the idea that you and I have been buried into Christ using the metaphor of baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life, it is only a legitimate metaphor because it is bouncing off its literal reality. And that is that we are Baptists. We believe in baptism by immersion. That's the, that's the biblical definition of what baptism is. So when someone comes to Christ, when we've made that disciple, when they have confessed their sins, when they've repented of those sins, when they've embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the first act, the first step of obedience is for them to be baptized. So we roll out a a baptismal and we have them give their testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then, like Romans 6 talks about, as they are baptized, it's picturing the fact that they have already died, they have come back to life in Christ, and they are raised to walk in newness of life. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 28, as you're making disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That is the vivid display, the waters of baptism. Why do you think we've been given an ordinance where you and I can not only see, but in some cases as you and I are baptized individually, we're touching the water? 
It's, it's tangible to us. The water is this, is this vivid display of the ordinance of being baptized into Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. The same with the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. You and I take the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. Why? Because it's a vivid display of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. How vivid is it? Here's our key word. It is so visible that what Paul, through the Holy Spirit's ministry, advised the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 is to take bread as emblematic, as a memorial of the death of Christ, and you take it to your fingers, quite literally, this bread as that memorial. The bread itself is is not the body of Christ, but it is a memorial to the very body of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus, and you take that and you put it to your lips. You take the cup and you put it to your mouth and you drink that juice, and it is emblematic. It's a vivid display. There's a visibility to it. See, I said last time, we don't, we don't worship icons and relics. We don't light candles. We don't do those things mainly because Scripture doesn't tell us to do those things, but we do do the ordinances as a vivid display of what Jesus Christ means to us in His death, burial, and resurrection. And so we take that bread to ourselves, and we take that juice to ourselves. It's vivid. That's why the church has these vivid ordinances. It's a visibility we're talking about. And then number 10, the church is purchased at the cost of Jesus' own precious blood. The church is purchased at the cost of Jesus' own precious blood. Acts 20, 28. It says there, does Paul, that God purchased. He bought the church at the cost of His Son's own precious blood. The blood of God. What's the key word? Tangibility. Tangibility. The tangible nature of why the church is relevant is because it cost Jesus Christ His very life. You want to ask me why the church is relevant? It's relevant because God the Father thought enough about the plan and purpose for the ages that He turned His wrath on His own Son so that that Son could purchase a people for His own possession. That's the relevance of the church. It cost the perfect Son of God His life. That's the tangible nature of the church. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, but the church isn't relevant. I'm a millennial. The church isn't relevant to me. Where's the glitz? Where's the glamour? Where's the lights? Where where are the lasers? Where are the bells? Where are the whistles? I tell you, all of those things are contained in the cross, in Christ. The tangible nature of why the church is relevant and important to God is that God gave up the most pricey thing in the universe, His only Son. You ready for five more? Number 11. Number 11. The church is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. I'm trying to be real short, key concept, one phrase, succinct to the point. Here it is. The church is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And here's what I did. I simply said to myself, now where else do I go in substantiating the idea of what is the church and why does it matter? And I thought to myself, you can't go any better than going in your Bibles to the book of Acts. So I want you to go to Acts chapter 1. The whole, the entire book of Acts is the idea about the church, right? 
And in the book of Acts, you and I find so much relevant information, teaching, instruction about the church. And in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, you and I are introduced to something that Old Testament saints only wished they could have experienced, and that was the personal, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, there were Old Testament people who had the personal power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but it was mainly kings and priests and prophets. Did you know that the run-of-the-mill or ordinary Old Testament believer did not have what you and I possess? And that is the personal, uh, abiding, internal ministry and power of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your life. And you know what? What's better than even that is that what's better than even the Holy Spirit in you individually is that the Holy Spirit is in the church corporately. The Holy Spirit empowers the church. In fact, the great emphasis of the New Testament is on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not merely, not only, not simply in the individual Christian, but corporately in the church. A lot of those yous and yours that are uh, spoken of in the New Testament are plural. It's talking about the Holy Spirit being resident, empowering in the church corporately when the church is gathered together. And I want to show you this. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 5. They were staying exactly where Jesus had them, and he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, according to verse 4, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the Holy Spirit is about to descend in a way totally unlike the Old Covenant. And they kept asking him questions, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, these apostles of the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Come upon you, of course, as individuals, but also on you or upon you in terms of the apostolic band and, of course, even the church itself. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you have this promise. You have this idea. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's going to come upon you, and you're going to do great exploits, miraculous exploits, you apostles. And here it comes. Look at chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What's going on? The promise is being fulfilled. Jesus said, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is going to come upon you in power. What kind of power? Miraculously so, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and like this kind of empowering that was likened unto a mighty rushing wind and likened unto tongues as of fire appeared upon them. Some a miraculous event, something that could have been very visibly manifested. And here's what that was in reality. 
these men knew their own local dialects, right? Like the Galileans. They had a distinct accent. It would be like uh, some of my friends from Little Rock, Arkansas. They've got a distinct accent, right? And these apostles were given this miraculous thing far beyond their accent. What was it? Languages that they had never studied or known. You say, what kind of languages? Look over here, and I'll tell you according to verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We know exactly what tongues were. Tongues was the ability for these apostles to speak a language that they had not known before so that they could communicate in the language of the hearer the gospel. You want to know who they were? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those who had become uh, Jewish in their orientation, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. It's amazing. It's miraculous. You know why the church is relevant? Because in its very starting, in its very origin, God wanted the gospel to go forth. And because there were people coming from all around the environs, from all around the known world, and they were coming to Jerusalem, and they didn't speak some of these languages, or possibly they only knew one language, their own. And so they came, and in order for the church to start, in order for the church to grow, these languages were miraculously put into the mouths of these apostles so that that apostle, who was this Galilean with his distinctive accent, was speaking in some of these languages, and the people were hearing the gospel in their own language. No wonder words like amazement and perplexity are mentioned. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And of course, there were some who were mocking. They thought these guys were mad. They didn't understand some of the languages that the apostles were communicating. They just thought these guys were drunk. If someone asked me, what's the relevance of the church? I tell you, the relevance of the church is that God had a plan and a purpose. And when he started the church, it was nothing to him to create in human beings' minds, these apostles and their minds, the miraculous knowledge of a language so that when they're speaking the gospel at this very entry point into the church, they'd never studied those languages before. That's no big deal to God. He can do that. He's the creator of languages, right? And so he takes these languages and he gives them into the very mind and mouth of the apostles and they're speaking the good word of Jesus Christ. And these guys all from around the world at that time as they knew it were hearing the gospel in their own language and they were being converted. And it was all as a result of the powerful Holy Spirit. What was God doing? He was creating the church. The church began at Pentecost right here. 
This is, this is an amazing word from God. And you know what? It's not just some of these Jews. The majority of these people were Jews, right? They were coming as Jews from all around the, the globe as they knew it, and they were coming in Jerusalem to give their gifts and to participate in the high holy days. What about the Gentiles? Well, they never had anything to do with the Jews. But look at Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, oh, even the Gentiles are getting involved in the act. Chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, he was marveling at what God had done in, in saying, uh, I'm declaring all foods clean, Jew and Gentile can eat at the table now. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, the gospel word, uh, the, the, the forgiveness of sins, according to verse 43. And they heard the word of God, they heard the gospel, and according to verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, there it is again, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in languages and extolling God. This miraculous speaking of languages that you'd never studied, you didn't know, Peter, the other apostles, they're coming along and they're beginning to speak in languages they'd never studied. And yet these people were hearing this powerful gospel word. The Holy Spirit was raining down upon them, these tongues of fire, these languages. And it was an amazing reality. That's why everybody's saying, amazing. This is perplexing. This is awesome. We use those words so flippantly today, don't we? Awesome, man. Awesome, dude guess what? You've not seen anything like this awesome. Can you imagine? You're, you're so desirous of communicating the gospel, and you're one of these apostles, and you're seeing the Holy Spirit come and empower your life like never before. Peter, Peter becomes this great preacher, and he wants to preach the gospel, and he's crying out to God, give me, give me a gospel word for this person. Well, here's the barrier. That, that person's from uh, Cyrene, uh, that's an Arabian, uh, uh, this is a Mede, this is a, a Persian, uh, they don't speak your Galilean dialect. Lord, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak the gospel to this person. And the Lord miraculously through the Holy Spirit gives Peter and John and James the opportunity and the others to speak a word of the gospel in their very language and they're hearing the gospel and they're turning to Christ and the church is beginning. Isn't that great? This is, this, is, this is the Holy Spirit's doing. And you know what the Holy Spirit's creating? A temple. A temple called the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the, this is the temple of God. This isn't the Herodian temple. This isn't the, the temple that was rebuilt, the second temple of, of Judaism by Herod. This isn't that. This is the church of the living God. This is the temple of God. This is what God's doing when he's building by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, you being the church, you being the Corinthian church? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That's what the church is, my friends. You say, well, I mean, boy, I haven't, I haven't really thought of it that way. Yes, the church congregationally is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. 
The Holy Spirit, God, He dwells in us. The Holy Spirit is in our presence right now. The Holy Spirit is energizing you to listen. And He's probably energizing some of you to listen even more clearly, more effectively. You and I are hearing, I'm preaching. And if I'm not preaching as effectively as I can, I'm asking, even as I'm preaching to you, Holy Spirit, use my words. Impact the hearts. Allow them to understand that the very purpose of the church, one of them, is that we are the church in which the Holy Spirit dwells. I mean, we're, we're talking about the power of God. You say, what kind of power? Oh, only the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we're talking about. You want to have power in your Christian life? Be a part of the church. Serve the church. Be here for the church. Minister in the throes of the church. That's why our key word is spirituality. Spirituality. The spirituality of the church is based upon the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. We don't have any spirituality. We aren't spiritual people unless the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, causes us to believe in Christ, and then we say, illumine my mind through the understanding of Scripture, through the preacher, through my own reading, through my own study. Empower me. Bring me a spirituality that is beyond my own. Number 12. Number 12. The church is the place where needs can be met. The church is the place where needs can be met. Oh, this is so rich. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You want to know what the early church was like? You want to know what the early church consisted of in the practical needs of their living? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all, you say, uh, how many were there? Well, we know at least according to verse 41. So those who received his word, the gospel word of Peter and his preaching were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we know that there were more than 3,000. And so that 3,000 and those who were before them and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, what a community. What a group. That's why our key word is materiality. Materiality. Whatever material goods, whatever needs somebody had. Hey, uh, what do you need? I have such and such. I have so and so. I just sold that. You can have that. Hey, look, if you're not using that, could I use that because I don't have that? Whatever need anybody has. The materiality of their group was they were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. They didn't, they didn't clutch anything as though it were their own. All their belongings, they were distributing the proceeds to all. It was managed. It was effective. It was love in action. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4. It says it again, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Don't you love that? They were together. They were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And of course, isn't it interesting that the following chapter, chapter 5, says that there were two people who didn't fit into that category, who were a little stingy, Ananias and Sapphira, and what happened to them? It ain't good. It's not good. They were killed on the spot by God himself because they were self-centered. It's not good to be self-centered in the church. It's good to be other-centered, meeting other people's needs. The church is the place where needs can be met. There's a materiality about us. Hey, let's help in any way we can. Number 13, the church flourishes amidst persecution. The church flourishes amidst persecution. You remember in Acts chapter 7? You read beginning, for instance, in verse 54, all the way to verse 60, Stephen's death, his martyrdom. And you would tend to, if you're not careful, think, well, this is such a bad thing. And yes, murder is always a bad thing. But what was God doing in allowing Stephen to be murdered? Well, he was the first martyr of the church. And he was, uh, he was uh, so wonderfully ushered immediately into heaven. And so God knew everything that was going to go on with Stephen. He knew Stephen was going to die. And that's why we've, we've said, and as you've heard many times the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. You would otherwise want, as you watch the unfolding of the church here in the book of Acts, for everything to be comfortable and easy. Because that's what so many people want about the church, right? Here's what I want from the church. I want it to be easy. I want it to be good. I want it to be fun. I want it to be entertaining. I want it to be what I want it to be. And if it's what I want it to be, then we're all good. Because the church is all about me. (laughs) Except the book of Acts says that if you do the right things, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. And Stephen's giving his life for the sake of the church. He's being persecuted. And according to Acts chapter 9, even in Paul's own calling by Jesus himself, Jesus says, Paul is going to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How would you like that to be a part of your calling? Okay, Lord, I want to be called. Okay, here's your calling. You're going to go before kings. You're going to go before the children of Israel. And you're going to go before the Gentile nations. Oh, and by the way, I will show you every step of the way how much you're going to suffer for my name. Lord, that's not a part of the calling, is it? I want it comfortable. I want it entertaining. I want it fun. I want it, I want it less all the distractions, less all the sufferings, less all the persecution. No, the church, according to God's plan and program, flourishes in the midst of persecution. That's why 2 Timothy 3.12 says that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you shall suffer persecution. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, latter part of verse 17, I carry in my body the very brand marks of Jesus. That was his calling. He says, sometimes I was beaten at times without number. I don't even know how many times they beat me. But I carry in my body the very marks, scars of Jesus. And he wouldn't have had it any other way. Why? Because the church flourishes in the midst 
of great persecution. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. Number 14, the church multiplies through church planting. And by the way, the key word for the church flourishing in the midst of persecution is hostility. Hostility. 14, the church multiplies through church planting. Oh, this is, this is so grand. We don't have time to go over it, but in Acts chapter 13, if you begin reading in Acts chapter 13, there's a, there's a kind of division that starts there. And in Acts chapter 13, the great church at Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul, Saul Paul, to begin the process of encouraging and evangelizing those in the regions in which they are sending them. And so you've got one church, Antioch, who is sending Paul and Barnabas, among others, to begin planting other churches. They're evangelizing, a church forms. They're evangelizing, a church forms. They're evangelizing, another church forms. You, you see that consistently throughout the, the book of Acts, starting in chapter 13 onward. What's, what's the key word there? Multiplicity. Multiplicity. Oh, my friends, we ought to be a church planting ministry. We don't exist unless we're all about the business of making sure that other strong, vibrant churches are being formed. You know, one among our number, John Luca Pellutri, just to give you an example, studied here in the United States from Italy, native of Italy, studying five years in this country, getting a couple of master's degrees in divinity and theology. And his heart, now that he's been trained along with his wife Sonia, is to go back to Italy, to go to a place that they've never lived, they've never been, in Florence, Italy, a place that's so beautiful in many ways, but is so devoid of the gospel that there are literally tens and tens and tens of thousands of people who live in a particular area in which he wants to plant a church that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ ever in their lives. Never. Totally Roman Catholic dominated, 99.97%, something like that. And he says, God, call me to this place. I want to go to this place. I want to preach the gospel. You might not know about John Luca, but while he was here studying in the United States, he was beset with leukemia. And God has worked it through in his life, and God has strengthened him and sanctified him through the process. And he's just one in which we would rejoice. And there are many other missionaries in this church who've been here before we've come, before I've come, and there are many who will come after. Why? Because we're all about multiplicity, right? Multiplying local churches, doing what God wants us to do, just like the book of Acts. That's why the church exists. And number 15, and finally for this morning, the church keeps the gospel central. The church keeps the gospel central. Maybe that should have been up near like number one and two, right? But from the book of Acts, you have very clearly defined for us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, in referring to Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus, and that's the gospel. And there is no other gospel. That's why Paul said in Galatians 1, If somebody comes to you, even if they were to be an angel from heaven, proclaiming to you a gospel other than the one that you received from us, Paul and his apostolic band, they are to be damned consigned to judgment, accursed, because it isn't the real gospel. 
You see, the church exists, my friends, to make the gospel central. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I give you this gospel as of first importance. Utterly of first importance. Central. That's why our key word is centrality. It's the centrality of the gospel. That's what we're all about. We equip people with the gospel. We clarify the gospel. We teach the gospel. We defend the gospel. We preach the gospel. We memorize the gospel. Why? Because the the church keeps the gospel central. It's the centrality of everything we do. My dear friends, if I get off base with regard to the gospel, please, I beg you, dismiss me at once. That's how important the gospel is. And there are so many who are running shipwrecked in the faith because they've been diluted in their thinking about the gospel. The gospel is the joy of knowing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and that it is by faith we come to Him, faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, through Scripture alone, because it is Christ alone who saves. That is the gospel. There is no other. It is central, and that's why the church exists. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel of hope. It's the gospel of truth. It's the gospel of eternity. And it must remain central. That's why this church cannot, must not, equivocate on the gospel, the good news. We have to affirm the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the soon coming return of Christ, the person of Christ, the God-man, the unique Son of God, His virgin birth, His sacrificial death, His atoning sacrifice, the inerrant word which proclaims that death. It is all wrapped up in the centrality of the message we preach. Oh, may it be so. Thank you for the church. Thank you that it is so inherently relevant that to even suggest that it isn't is a very slap in your face. May we commit ourselves as the church to be the church and make the gospel central in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.